Hello, and welcome back to the 46 Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Ben Link, the president of 46 Brooklyn Research, but I'm also a pharmacist fed up with fake, artificially inflated drug prices. Today's episode is the fourth one in our ongoing Drug Pricing 101 series. As a reminder, the goal of the Drug Pricing 101 series is to introduce the core concepts of the U.S. drug supply chain to hopefully foster a better understanding of the data available at 46brooklyn.com. As with any educational endeavor, I've attempted to present the information in a logical manner, hopefully to ease understanding. However, I want to recognize and acknowledge that everyone learns differently. To that end, if you have questions or comments regarding these materials, please reach out to us on our website. Your comments and questions will only make our content better. On our last episode, we wrapped up the conversation started a couple of episodes ago on drug prices set by the drug manufacturer by discussing average wholesale price or AWP. AWP is arguably the most important drug price we have thus far discussed because it's omnipresent in the drug supply chain contracts, which is why it took us a whole episode to talk about this one price. The two key points from the prior episode were, one, AWP is such an important price because it's the pricing benchmark that is generally relied upon in contracts, which ultimately determines what is paid for prescription drugs. And two, AWP is a broken pricing benchmark in that it is not reflective of an average of any price, including average wholesale prices. In this episode, we are going to move away from talking about prices set by drug manufacturers and begin to discuss prices set by the next entity in the direct drug supply chain, wholesalers. To begin our conversation today, recall that a drug wholesaler is a company that purchases drugs from many different drug manufacturers to make it more convenient for pharmacies to purchase the drugs that they need for their patients. Without a wholesaler, a pharmacy would have to contract with each and every drug manufacturer directly, which would not only be more burdensome, but potentially cause significant delays in getting drugs in stock. You may not realize it, but it's not uncommon for pharmacies to receive a new order of purchased drugs into their pharmacy multiple times per week, sometimes even daily. When a pharmacy gets these drugs in stock, it is generally doing so via a purchase from a drug wholesaler, though there are exceptions where the pharmacy purchases directly from the manufacturer, but again, those types of purchases are rarer and rarer. There are several mechanisms by which a pharmacy can purchase drugs from a wholesaler. The first is by shopping the market. That is going to each wholesaler's website, the nation's largest being McKesson, Cardinal, and Amerisource Virgin, creating a profile and browsing inventory prices to see who is offering the best deal for the drugs they need. While this might be the incentive the market wants to create to encourage low drug prices, it is a fairly laborious process for a pharmacy to do so, as 
accessing drug pricing information line by line across multiple platforms is going to take time and be prone to errors, particularly if you need to purchase a large amount of inventory, which may be the case given that there are nearly 200,000 unique products that they may be able to purchase. As an aside, I'm getting that 200,000 number of products based upon what is available in those drug reference files we previously discussed. So while it is certainly an option for pharmacies to shop around, pharmacies generally do not shop the market of wholesalers on a daily basis. And even if they do, they're not seeking price comparisons for every drug they aim to purchase. In addition to time concerns, pharmacies can be contractually restricted from shopping for all of their inventory. This is because pharmacies typically contract directly with one wholesaler as their primary wholesaler, and maybe one or two more as secondary wholesalers. When a pharmacy signs a primary wholesaler contract, it agrees to terms that include an obligation to purchase the majority, often greater than 90% of its total purchases from that primary wholesaler, which in turn locks them out of shopping the market more broadly. This is because if they fail to meet their obligation under their contract to purchase most of their drugs from their primary wholesaler, they'll lose whatever brand discount or generic rebate guarantees they've negotiated, which can dramatically impact their bottom line. These time, contract, and economic constraints exist whether the pharmacies negotiate their contracts with wholesalers directly or through buying groups such as group purchasing organizations or GPOs. The benefit of the primary wholesaler relationship from the pharmacy's perspective at least is that primary wholesalers typically will have a more complete catalog of products than many of the secondary wholesalers and will often have a more rapid turnaround time when orders are placed. But perhaps the biggest benefit a pharmacy can receive through its primary wholesaler are obtaining pricing concessions beyond what is available from the wholesaler's typical or base pricing catalog, that shopping we discussed as the first option. First, pharmacies generally need the negotiated pricing concessions in order to purchase drugs in such a way that they'll be able to take a person's prescription drug insurance and the rates paid for via those mechanisms. This is really a conversation for a later podcast, but suffice it to say for now, insurers which are paying the bills know that pharmacies are getting these discounts and may alter their payment based upon that knowledge. Recall that when we talked about WAC, that is wholesale acquisition cost, that pricing point is federally defined to exclude discounts the wholesalers offer, like prompt pay or rebates to their pharmacy customers. This means that after a pharmacy makes their purchase, at some point down the line, the wholesaler will return additional money back to the pharmacy in the form of a cash rebate or credit against future purchases. So WAC, despite its name, is not best categorized as a true wholesale price, which is why we categorized it as a drug manufacturer price. Additionally, drug manufacturers are often the ones actually reporting WAC to drug reference files, not wholesalers. 
all of this brings us to the pricing points we want to talk about today. And those are the prices which represent actual pharmacy purchases from wholesalers and so reflect actual wholesale prices. The most utilized price in this regard is one known as National Average Drug Acquisition Cost, or NADAC. NADAC is a pricing benchmark published by the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services based upon the work of their subcontractor, Myers & Stauffer, a professional accounting firm specializing in healthcare. To derive NADAC, pharmacies are voluntarily surveyed to provide copies of their actual invoices from wholesalers. Once obtained, these invoices are reviewed, aggregated, and analyzed to publish a NADAC price point for each individual drug at an NDC or National Drug Code level for products covered by Medicaid in accordance with the Social Security Act's definition of covered outpatient drug. This is an important distinction and that that definition of drug does not represent all of the 200,000 plus drugs we mentioned exist on the market. And while it does cover something like 95% of all drugs dispensed in Medicaid, the costliest medications are not covered by the NADAC survey methods and so do not have a NADAC price. One of the advantages of NADAC in relation to WAC is that because it is a survey of actual invoice prices from wholesalers, any direct price concessions are reflected in its calculation. So when I was previously discussing some of the advantages of the primary wholesale relationship to pharmacies, one of those was getting drugs purchased at a lower price than they might otherwise get. This has advantages from a business standpoint as lowering your purchase price of a good as a pharmacy or any supplier can have beneficial effects to cash flow as you have less money tied up in inventory within your business. The only price concessions not reflected in NADAC's publication from wholesalers would be any off invoice discounts pharmacies receive from their wholesalers like rebates. The lack of pricing information for all drugs and the lack of off invoice discounts are not the only limitations with NADAC. NADAC as stated is a voluntary survey, meaning pharmacies are free to respond to the survey or not. This often discourages some of the largest purchasers of drugs, such as the national change, such as the national chains from reporting pricing to the survey. This is because they will only likely reduce the amount of money they can make from payers that pay based upon NADAC rates. For example, consider for a moment that you are an executive in CVS, Walgreens, or Rite Aid, the largest retail pharmacy chains in the country. If you respond to this survey, your pricing data becomes intermingled with the independent and small chain pharmacies who are almost certainly purchasing drugs at a higher cost than you because they do not have the volume of sales you do and thus do not get the degree of wholesaler discounts that they can command. To be more specific, these large pharmacy chains often have special relationships with their primary wholesaler like CVS and Cardinal forming Red Oak, which was pretty clearly stated by CVS as being done to leverage their buying power to get greater price concessions from their wholesalers 
based upon information within their public financial filings. By not responding to the surveys as one of these large chains, the survey depends upon their competitors' higher cost drug invoices to set NADAC, and so you create more revenue for your pharmacies from payers like Medicaid programs that may use NADAC as the basis for paying pharmacy claims. Said differently, there is no incentive for you to respond to the NADAC survey, as it can only undercut your reimbursements. This is why some state Medicaid groups do not rely upon NADAC, but rather conduct their own, sometimes mandatory, survey of pharmacies in their states. A 2021 report by 3Axis, which I myself am also a part of, found that the difference to Medicaid based upon NADAC-based pricing or Alabama's AAC price, which is a mandatory survey of drug prices in their state, would result in $10 billion in savings over a 10-year period based upon Alabama's AAC price being that much lower than NADAC. At the time of this recording, our own home state, Ohio, as part of its Medicaid PBM overhaul, is also moving toward mandatory AAC survey as well. This represents a good opportunity to quickly discuss at least part of the goal we have collectively from talking about drug prices. On the one hand, we collectively generally want to get drugs as cheaply and therefore as affordably as possible. This means that we want to create a system that incentivizes efficiency, as efficiency will lead to cost savings. Generally speaking, a system is efficient when it manages its inventory, which in our case is drugs, and turns through that inventory fast. By this, we mean the goal is not to have a drug sit on the shelf undispensed for an extended period of time. Not only does a drug potentially risk losing efficacy over time, if it sits on the shelf so long that the drug expires, but we also know that drugs, generally speaking, are getting cheaper over time. The data that 46 Brooklyn tracks shows that generic drugs pretty consistently get cheaper month over month based upon their actual acquisition cost. And data from other sources like drug channels show that after tabulating rebates and other drug maker price concessions, brand medications are getting cheaper over time as well. This means that the shorter the duration of time from purchasing a drug to dispensing the medication means we can capture as much drug deflation as possible when dispensing. However, this incentive, if left unchecked, would lead us to have pharmacies with barren shelves because taken to its logical extreme, the most efficient pharmacy would have no drugs in inventory. It would purchase everything it needs for next day delivery. It would sell it to you on the following day. This brings us to another goal of health policy as it relates to drugs, and that is having a full-service pharmacy. Ideally, most people want the opportunity to go to a pharmacy and have their prescription filled same day or same hour for that matter. Said differently, can you imagine if you yourself or your child went to a pharmacy after getting diagnosed with an infection or were in pain or were having an asthma attack and were told you need to keep suffering for a day or two until the pharmacy got your product in stock. That is almost certainly not what we want. So to enable a pharmacy to dispense drugs same day, the pharmacy must have inventory on its shelf to do this. 
But you can start to see the conflict because our first goal is saying on any given day, there will be hundreds of thousands of options that do not get dispensed. And that is inefficient. The second goal is conflicting with that goal, saying we want those drugs to be there, but we don't want to pay too much for them. We'd rather have the efficiency. And over time, I'd argue that that is what we've done as we've moved some systems away from some artificial pricing mechanisms and towards a system of reimbursement predicated on actual acquisition cost. That said, we still have a lot of work to do. In our next episode, we will discuss the last direct drug supply chain pricing component and talk about drug prices as set by pharmacies. The last person to touch the drug before it goes to the patient. We will then move on to talk about drug pricing set by non-direct drug supply chain entities like pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs. But until then, I want to thank you for listening encourage you to please send in any feedback or questions on these episodes, and I hope you'll tune in to our next one. The 46 Brooklyn podcast would like to thank McGowan Braybender for the use of their facilities in recording our podcast. We'd also like to thank Ben at Journeyman Productions for assistance with our music and sound. As a reminder to our listeners, if you're curious about any of the materials discussed on today's episode, additional information can always be found on 46brooklyn.com.